Welcome to the Core Women Podcast, the place for women entrepreneurs, authors, and self-starters looking to build community and gain valuable insights through expert interviews with women at the top of their game. Join your host, podcaster, producer, expert coach, entrepreneur, and author, Dr. Summer Watson, as she aims to inspire and empower you through these candid conversations. Lean in and embrace the journey. It's time to start the show. Here's your host, Dr. Summer Watson. Today on the show, I would like to welcome Ruth Rathbot, who is an expert on inclusion and diversity. She is a TEDx and inspirational speaker and an award-winning nonprofit leader. She was born with a limb difference and speaks to companies on issues of equity and belonging. She is also the author of the new book, single-handedly. We have so much to talk about here today, Ruth. So let's jump right into this and welcome. Thank you, Summer. I'm excited to talk to you. And I know just even based on other conversations, we have a lot to talk about. We do. And we always have so much fun. So before we get into your professional background, can you describe your personal journey so far in one word? a great question. And I would say the word that comes to mind immediately is unhiding. That's been professional hiding. Ooh, tell me more. Let's talk about this. Yep. I was, as you mentioned in the intro, I was born with a limb difference Uh and for the first 13 years of my life, I didn't hide it. And then when I started a new high school, so when I think about my journey, part of it starts with my education, right? And I started a new co-ed high school and I started hiding my hand in many ways, like many teens, because I wanted to fit in and I wanted to get to have friends. And so I started hiding and that hiding, what started out as an impulsive decision to kind of just hide for the day Mm -hmm. lasted the next 25 years of my life. And so I hid parts of my personality and my limb difference from everyone. And so it impacted how I showed up. It impacted how people got to know me because they weren't really getting to know me because I was always constantly worrying and forecasting kind of the next step so that I wouldn't be discovered. So when you have that lens of hiding, you're constantly thinking about, is someone going to find out? Are they going to like you? Are they going to hire you? And for me, that journey of hiding turned into one of unhiding. And that's where I really think that for the first time I blossomed and I got to be myself. And, but that didn't happen for pretty much half, more than half of my life. So I would say hiding was the first part. Okay. Interesting. So the word is unhiding. When you first started hiding, was that conscious? Was that subconscious? Both? Yeah, I think it was a little bit of both if I'm thinking about it, Summer, because I think the hiding was just a natural reaction that so many of us do, right? To feeling different. So if we can cover that part of ourselves just so that somebody, that doesn't have to be how we're defined, we do it just to kind of almost out of natural habit. I mean, people do it all the time, right? They hide their ethnicity from people, they hide their religion, they hide their family backgrounds they hide their mental health because we just don't want always that to be the first thing that people think of when they think of us. So we hide it. So there's a a consciousness to it because we're aware. 
And then there's an unconsciousness to it in terms of it becomes really easy almost to not own that part of ourselves. Right. Almost like a disassociation in a sense. And I get it because when I was six months, and I think we talked about this before, six months of age was my first surgery on my stomach. And I had a hole in my small intestine as I grew, things happened internally and I had more and more surgeries. So I had a lot of scarring on my stomach. So as I grew up, I was very shy about that. And so when I grew up in a beach town, going to the beach a lot. So there was definitely no way that I was going to wear a two piece. So it was always the one piece. Do not show the scar. I feel very uncomfortable about that. Even in gym where you're taking your, your clothes off to get suited up for sports and whatnot, same thing. So I was kind of hiding. And so you're absolutely right. We don't want to be defined by that one thing or certain things, such as you said, maybe the limb or the scar or the, or the mental health. We want them to see us as we portray ourselves. Right. Almost like a, another person. Like a mask, right? A mask. And it's, there's a self-consciousness to it. And there's also something that we develop in our minds, right? Because I imagine, and I'm not taking away from your experience of your scars, right. but I imagine to you, they were so much worse than they would have been to someone else. That's right. how I felt about my hands. Like to me, I built up this image in my, of my hand in my head that it was horrible and horrific and ugly. And yeah. so to others, that's how I imagined they would see it. So I was never going to show them that, um, that part of myself. And we do that to ourselves all the time. We build up in our heads and it's not until we're kind of challenged about it that we break some of it. But even then it's so hard to, to break that story that we've told ourselves. Absolutely. 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 Now I could care less. It's like, okay, whatever. Right. But as a preteen, a teen, and we're very egocentric, right. That's where a lot of that development, that switch comes in where it's just natural and organic. It's a developmental thing, right. Part of it is in relation to what we want to show the world, how we want to show the world, whatever that is. So let me ask you, in relation to unhiding, what was that first step to unhiding? Yep. It took a long time to get to that first step because I had tried for so many years on my own. I had tried to say when I left high school to go to college, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to not hide my hand here anymore. Like I'm going to go to school and on my first day, I'm not going to hide. I'm going to do it. And I ended up hiding again. Mm. I went to an internship. I got on the elevator. I remember saying, I'm not going to hide here. Like this is, I'm going to start from the beginning. Like they're, they're going to know. And I started hiding because it just became easy to hide rather than dealing with the stares or the double takes to the questions. And so it wasn't until 25 years later that I let someone in and let them teach me how to love that part of myself that I deemed unlovable for so long. That person taught me how to actually look at my hand summer, how to touch it. Mm-hmm. It's been buried so long in my pocket. And that's where I, that's mm-hmm. where I, I hid in my pocket um, or longer sleeves or under be- books. I mean, I found so many creative ways. I got really, really good at hiding, Right. but it took that one person 
to dispel the image that I had created in my head that reached out and literally not only introduced themselves to my hand, but allowed me to meet my hand for the first time. And so I think we often hear that adage, right? Like you have to love yourself before you can let others love you. Right. I agree with it. I mean, it's on every self-help magazine, every Oprah show, like it's, you have to love yourself first. I disagree because I think sometimes, and only sometimes, do you have to let someone in to teach you how to love that part of yourself that you find so unlovable? Right. And I think that's a really valid point. But I think that first step of letting someone in is also about kind of loving yourself. It's also about trusting yourself. It's also about being open to whatever may come. And that is really feeling okay with yourself at that point saying, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah. Or it's hitting bottom sometimes to recognize that you can't do it yourself, right? Like you can't, I was so deeply in belief that I, that I was never going to unhide like by myself. I couldn't, I didn't know. I didn't, I really got to the place of resolution that I thought this was my only path forward was just, I was going to hide for the rest of my life. And I worried about things that we worry about, like, how would I ever get married? How would I put a ring on my left hand? Like, how would that person know um, how I couldn't let them know? So was I never going to get married? Was I never going to be in a relationship? And it had to get so bad. And I do equate it to hitting bottom. It had to get bad for me that I almost, I don't want to say in desperation, because I would take away from that relationship, right. it was allowing that person in because I couldn't figure out another way to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, did trust. I built trust for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Person. But you let that person in. Yeah. And so I think that was a courageous first step. It's a huge first step. And yeah. it really scary. It was definitely scary because yeah. you come up with a lot of excuses and reasons why it'll matter to them. Um, but I will say to your point, that first step then leads to a second step, right? Cause yes. then I started little by little letting other people in too and letting them know. And the stories I told myself in my head started to vanish, not completely because there's some of them that are there still, but they little by little, they started to vanish. And I started to accept to your point. I started to accept myself. Right. Well, I love that. And that mindfulness those words, those phrases, I call that brain mapping, not the same as if you were to go get an x-ray and not that brain map, but the words and phrases that we tell ourselves will create a message that we believe. So when we start changing those words and phrases and being mindful of them, that's when we also start changing the way we feel about ourselves or we feel about others, which gets me to my next point. And my next question, let's talk about your experience and how you talk about diversity and inclusion and your experience with this. Yeah, it's interesting. I have been a nonprofit leader for, I had been for over 25 years and in the nonprofit space. And at one point, Summer, I was questioned about the diversity of my team and leadership within the organization. And when we got to kind of the meat of it, I asked the question, if people saw me as diverse and the answer back was, well, you're a woman. And I said, that is absolutely a lens of diversity and inclusion, the gender lens. 
Mm-hmm. And I said, but what about my limb difference? Doesn't that count? And I was told that they didn't see me that way, that, that my disability wasn't part of me. They didn't see me that way because they, mm-hmm. I think they had an image of what disability looked like mm-hmm. and that it wasn't part of the diversity conversation. And I wasn't look, I wasn't asking to be seen as having a disability. I was asking for it to be acknowledged as part of the diversity conversation. And when I started going out and talking to others about how they were defining diversity, they were coming up with three important pillars and themes, right? We talk often when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we talk about race, Mm -hmm. we talk about gender, Mm -hmm. Sometimes we put in sexual orientation and those Mm. are critical to the diversity conversation Mm -hmm. and disability is also an important part because disability cuts across all lines. A disability is the largest minority group. You can have a visible disability or an invisible disability. Um, So people may not always recognize your disability because it may be invisible, whether it's your mental health or neurodiversity. Mm-hmm. And the other piece is I started to look at how are we defining diversity and why is disability not included? And mm-hmm. so as I think about the diversity and inclusion conversations, my passion project has really become how do we expand those conversations to be fully inclusive so that others can feel who have felt marginalized or felt underrepresented can feel included in the diversity conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, We aren't just one thing. We aren't just our race or our gender or sexual orientation. We are many things. And I will add disability. The other piece that of it cutting across all lines is that it can happen to you at any point, right? You can born with a disability. You can acquire a disability. You can be a caretaker for a disability at, and at some point of your life. So disability impacts us all, whether yeah. you understand it today as that or at some point. I mean, I heard some or someone say something really interesting, a little scary, but they said, we are all temporarily abled. And I thought that was interesting because that then gives you perspective of this is going to impact you at some point of your mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, my charge is to really expand the conversation of diversity. And I think that is so important as a clinician in the field of mental health for years. I never looked at a human being and their functioning from one perspective. I looked at it from many perspectives. So I looked at social functioning. I looked at their mental health, their medical health, their genetics, their history, like all these different factors, because it's not just one thing that makes us up or defines our process or our thought process or the way we function. It's multiple things. So I love that you're opening up that dialogue and that conversation to the multiple things that we may be looking at or could be looking at when it comes to diversity. And just like you are saying, Let's take a holistic approach to right. Diversity, right? right? Let's realize that it can affect all of us and that there's enough room at the table to have these conversations in diversity. Like there's enough room to, and there's a lot of themes that th- flow through the diversity conversations that impact each group. And so why can't we come together? Absolutely. Let's 
build that abundance mindset rather than a scarcity mindset. Oh, we're only going to talk about this. We're only, doesn't mean I'm taking away from the experiences that different marginalized groups have faced, but let's start to understand and appreciate other themes as well. And what are the themes that go through all of our experiences? Yeah, absolutely. And I love that. See, I've worked with, well, creating a veterans nonprofit. And when I did that, we were looking for funding and it was, nope, you can't get funding because there's not a loss of limb. And when I'd watch commercials, I'd watch these veteran commercials and I'd see a loss of limb and I'm like, okay, I get it. But what about the mental health part? And there's something to what you said earlier when you were talking about invisible, right? These invisible disabilities. And one of the ways that mental health is defined many times, especially with veterans is invisible wounds Mm. and invisible trauma. And the question I put out to people many times would be, if we call them invisible wounds and invisible trauma, are we then dismissing them to a certain degree and allowing them to be overlooked because we have our blinders on because they are invisible. And that terminology then lends to, we don't have to see it. We don't have to recognize it. Right. And that's just like when we define things a certain way and we leave out people, it's that's, it's sending that same message, right? Like it's not, or we don't have to see it. Um, Absolutely. And I would even add to that too, some of the, the context of COVID, right? Like not just COVID as an illness, but the mental health piece that we are now starting to see and probably haven't seen the huge ramifications of two years of isolation and lack of social interaction. And there were people that had those invisible wounds and traumas before COVID that got potentially exacerbated, but there's some who are new, newer to the space. And so that's my hope is with, we can really start to have conversation and bring mental health awareness to the surface so that it isn't invisible anymore. Bravo. I love it because I had gotten so many calls, so many texts about I'm having issues. My kids are having issues because of the isolation, because of the lack of social connection, because of the mask. And there may have been some trauma previously in those people's lives, but there may not have been, but because of those different factors that have never been experienced to the degree that we were experiencing them, that caused some mental health questions for those people. Like, could this be that my child is responding to the lack of socialization, the the isolation, the fear because of the mask wearing? Yes, absolutely. And those conversations need to happen because we're not seeing everything that in regards to, I I don't want to say the fallout, but the evolution of what has happened here. A hundred percent. And to that point too, we're having a mental health crisis, right? We have people who are suffering and we have a lack of providers. There's a gap in being a provider. So you have a lot of people who need support or need a place to talk about what's going on. And you have overworked and overloaded caseloads and people who aren't even able to see any more patients. So how do we talk about, how do we start to value mental health? I know, and I may have shared this with you before, but when COVID started March of 2020, I, you know, it was supposed to be that first two weeks, right? Like first it was a week and I prepared people. I'm like, oh, take two weeks of work home. And, you know, it's kind of like a snow vacation, pretend that. 
And then it kept getting extended, right? And it kept saying, well, no, it's not going to be until April 1st, no, May 1st. And I remember calling my father and saying about six weeks in and saying, I don't know that I can do this anymore. And he, of course, panicked because I was in tears. Mm -hmm. And I said, this isn't my life. This isn't how I want to be living my life. Like I'm, and I'm again, not trying to make a violin song out of this, but I missed my life. I missed my friends. I missed my connections. I missed going to the theater. I missed complaining about having to go to the gym. Like I missed all those pieces that made up my life. And I recognize so many of us did, and I didn't know how to make it. And I said, and I didn't have a plan, but I didn't think I, I didn't, I couldn't go on. And I said to him, we made a deal that I would make it until June 1st. And I said, I can make it till June 1st, but I can't promise after that because this isn't my life. And we, you know, remembering what it was like back then when we had no answers about COVID, we had no, right. And I did have a really good friend who said, you know what, Ruth, you've gone to therapy in your life. Why not use this opportunity to go back? And I did. And one of the things I came up with was that I needed to start to travel again. I needed to, to see people because I couldn't be isolated in New York city by myself, which at the time summer was the epicenter of, and it wasn't, it wasn't a healthy place to be. And I understood I could get sick with COVID, which would not be good at all. And that could be fatal, but I also couldn't live alone in my apartment in New York. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was difficult. It was a challenge. There was a CNN anchor. Her name's Brooke Baldwin. And she was kind of documenting, you know, her experience. She lived in New York city and she was saying some of the very same things and having a difficult time. And she actually, during that time, wrote a book and did a lot of self-reflection and changed her journey because of it. And yeah, I, there's, there's just, there's so much that we could talk about here because of the way this has changed our lives about the diversity inclusion about the the invisible wounds so let's move on to the next question but thank you so much for sharing that experience because that is so important and people if you're listening and you've missed any part of this please go back and check it out because i love what you said there about your friend maybe this is an opportunity to go back Mm-hmm. to go back to counseling because counseling is not just about fixing yourself. It's also about connection. It's also about ideas. It's also about that exchange and that socialization. And here's the other part of this too, Ruth, that people tend to forget during that time. And even now it's not just the lack of providers, but those providers are human too. And maybe yeah. feeling exactly the way you just mm-hmm. indicated how you were feeling. And we were seeing that happen during the beginning of COVID where doctors were taking their lives, where things were happening, where we were just shocked and just in disbelief about, oh my gosh, our, our own care providers are under so much stress and they were experiencing COVID fatigue mm-hmm. and they still are because they also had to change their methods, their habits, their routines. And that looked very different. When I went to go see two of my doctors in North Carolina, I live in Northern Virginia, but I go see these specialists in North Carolina. The first thing they did with me is they just, I I guess I'm somebody they feel they can talk to, but for the first 15 minutes, they were talking about like, we're so exhausted. We're so tired. Oh my gosh, we've got COVID fatigue. We don't, we don't have enough nurses. We don't have, 
we can't do our surgeries. We have, everything has changed for us. So what you were experiencing, our providers were experiencing, and Mm -hmm. we were losing providers at the same time because of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. So when we talk about mental health, yes, it is a crisis. We went through an evolution throughout this COVID time. And this is something we absolutely, absolutely need to put on the forefront of conversation of opening dialogue about this because it is important. It's imperative because there can be long-term effects because of it. Especially as we start to talk about return to work too, right? The anxiety come up for people around how am I going to go back into an office, not just for health reasons, but for mental health reasons. And because people don't know me or I've been able to kind of hide behind a screen and now I have to go back in person. And what some of those things I was able to quote unquote control and have certainty around, I now have to go back out. And how do, what does that look like for me? How do I unhide? Absolutely. And I think that was a contributing factor. This all is to the great resignation at the end of 2021, when we're seeing these this huge flux of people starting to quit their jobs. That was part of it. Absolutely. So let's jump to the next question. Tell us about your TEDx and the Lucky Finn project. Yeah, absolutely. Those are two of my favorite subjects. <laughs> so I found one of the things that after meeting someone who taught me how to love myself, I was randomly in a drugstore and buying t- paper towels done the last <laughs> And I noticed out of the corner of my eye, a woman with one arm. And because when you start to accept yourself, you start to see other people who are like you, right? The blinders come off. Yeah. And I went over and I started talking to her and it was really one of the first times I'd ever talked to somebody with my kind of hand. And at the end of the conversation, she said, well, do you know about the Lucky Finn project? I had no idea what she was talking about. I couldn't tell if it was Lucky Charm cereal meets Wounded Warrior project. Like I couldn't figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. She said, oh, there's a whole Facebook group, social media group called the Lucky Finn Project. And it's all people like us with limb differences. I had never heard the word limb difference before. And so I went home, rushed home and started looking at the Lucky Finn Project. And at that time, there were 30,000 people who had limb differences just like mine. I started to see my hand on other people. And Mm. I had lived my whole life thinking I was one of the only ones. And I was on this kind of deserted island by myself. And now to see young kids with my hand, adults with my hand, parents, that group has grown to over 70,000 members. And I have a picnic every year. And I literally just got back. That was one of the hardships of COVID is we couldn't go for two years, but I just went a few weekends ago. And that beauty of the young kids who get to see a role model, right? And their parents who worry so much, is my kid going to be okay with this? There's so little information about what causes it or why. And then the adults who have been through the shared experience, like we've, I thought I was the only, I thought I invented hiding. I didn't invent hiding. Other people had done it too. We just didn't know about each other. I didn't know that we, you know, we were all trying to always think outside the box or trying to forecast next steps on how to get things done. So there was this power in the shared experience. So Lucky Finn was the second piece to my unhiding because all of a sudden I felt like I belonged to a group and there's a community. I found my people. Right. Um, and so I joined, yeah, I joined the board because of course that's something that resonates and close to my heart. 
And so as I started thinking about this conversation around expanding diversity, limb differences, why wasn't disability included? I realized I had a story to tell. And as I started talking to companies, more and more people kind of started saying, hey, I hide part of myself. Wow, I have a disability. Why am I not included? You're right. And I realized this was a message worth spreading, an idea worth spreading. And so I applied to do a TEDx. And in the fall, I was able to do my TEDx. And it was called, When I Stopped Hiding, I Found Freedom. Because Mm. I truly did find freedom. And I think some of the equation of meeting someone, finding your community, and then sharing your story is how we unhide. Oh, absolutely. It's really interesting that you say that because I have a audio processing disorder and it's called APDO. And I was diagnosed with this at Berkeley, an undergrad. So you can't see it. Mm-hmm. Can't tell, but it impacts my short-term memory and my processing. So it's not that I can't hear, it's the way that my brain processes certain things. And it's predominantly in people who are of average to above average intelligence. And yet nobody can see this. And yet I know it's there. And I I met a couple years ago for the first time one person who said, I have an audio processing disorder. And I was like, what? You have the two? Oh my gosh. Do you know anybody else? <laughs> like, she was the first person. <laughs> and I was like, wow. Oh my gosh. This is incredible. Because people have no idea. They have yeah. no idea because they're like, well, you, you've created interviews. But there's certain things that I learned throughout the years, how to compensate for that disorder. When I first was diagnosed, they were like, you're doing a great job. What do you do? Give us your habits, your routines, your A, B, and C, because they wanted to figure out what I was doing to compensate for that. And I wasn't even aware that I was doing that. I'm like, I sit in front of class. I take notes. I make sure I have a recorder. I I mean, there were a lot of things that I was doing, but when it came to foreign languages, I was having a really hard time. I could write out all the stuff, get A's, but when it came to the audio processing stuff and the conversational component of that, I was getting D's and I'm thinking, I do not know why I'm studying all the time. Finally took myself. I thought I need to go see somebody. I need to go talk to somebody. And then that's when they ran uh, just a barrage of tests and they found out that this was going on. And I was like, oh my gosh, I thought I was just, I didn't know what was wrong with me because seriously, I was studying all the time. So they finally were able to put a label on it, but because it is invisible, nobody knows. And so it's, it's really hard to say, oh, what did you say? Or, and just really tune into, okay, I need to process that. I need to say, you know, really take a step back. I need to digest that in different ways. Absolutely. No. And I think that a couple of things that you said that totally resonate with a, you think you're the only one, right? There's an alone feeling to it. There's definitely a compensation piece to it, which I call we accommodate in ways that we even realize most of the time, or that people can't even imagine that we're doing, right? It's the one right. thing that's different. And I think the other piece to it, not to kind of water it down is it can be exhausting, right? And so there's yeah. a piece too, it can be lonely and exhausting. And so as we realize that, and we start to share our story out and just to meet one other person or yeah. people, or to share your story and realize 
that while maybe they don't have that same piece of APDO, but they have something that's similar to be like, wow, I have felt like that too. I mean, I was literally in the post office yesterday, mailing out some books of mine and the woman that was taking the, was doing the postal stuff uh, said to me, I was telling her about my book and she said, oh, here's how I've been hiding. Like, because once we start to be vulnerable ourselves, right? Others start to share their differences and their challenges with us. Absolutely. And I want to get to your book, but I have to mention this example of also unseen disability. I was in the post office and I saw this young man and he was just frustrated and he was in the back of the post office and he was trying to do something, fill out an envelope for like priority or something like that. And I just was like, gosh, that kid is so frustrated. Something's going on. And I looked back there and I said, can you save my, my, my place? And I said, do you need help? He goes, yes, I have dyslexia and I'm trying to write out these numbers. And it's really, really difficult for me. I said, okay. And other people start hearing what was going on, but a lot of times it's also recognition and asking, how can I be of help? And that kid goes, would you please, do you mind? This is just really hard for me. And the more I get stressed, the more difficult it becomes. And I said, I would be happy to. And so the, the, the guy who was behind me said, please, I will save your space. Please get back in line. And I was like, I'd like to give this kid my, my space so I can at least make sure that he's helped because he had went to the front which is something I omitted from the story. He went to the front and the lady goes, just go over there and go get the envelope. And I was like, oh no, I saw his stress escalate. And I thought, oh my goodness, I, I just need to ask if he needs some help. Well, and imagine if the world were kinder like that and curious, right? And, that, and asking where we can support rather than sending someone away. Or what we often do is just not deal with it. Like I'm not dealing with it. Or we make up uh, assumptions about someone because of, their ability. So we've filled in a story and a narrative that actually sometimes isn't even true, but you showed kindness, you showed curiosity, and then you showed support. That's the world I want to live in. Right. Me too. And the guy behind me was like, I think he was just taken with it. And he was just like, Oh my gosh, like nobody recognized that or even bothered to ask. And I thought, well, we want to try and recognize these things. These things are invisible. Sometimes we have, like you said, create these narratives. And why don't we just ask right. what's going on? How are you doing? How can, can I, I be of help or right. support? Yeah. Right. So help? Mm-hmm. Let's get on to the next question. Cause I want you to talk about your incredible book single-handedly. I'm so excited to read it. So this is the third topic that I love talking about. It's, <laughs> it's lucky Finn and it's my book. And so, yeah, the book came I'm embarrassed to say the book has been in me for a while. I've wanted to write a book. Like many of us, we have an idea of wanting to write a book. And I did my TEDx and I went to, somebody introduced me to a speakers bureau and I thought, done, I am going to be a speak. I'm going to continue to build this speaking. It's going to be easy. And the speakers bureau said, so where's your book? And I said, what? I just did a TEDx. I got that. I got the speaking thing. You've watched me. He said, no, no, you need a book. And I wrestled with the idea of the book for a while because I thought, is this a book for, initially it was a book for DEI and HR professionals on how to build an inclusive work environment. 
And, you know, people gave me ideas like, oh, come up with the top 10 things you're asked when you're speaking around disability. You could talk about expanding diversity. And what it turned into, Summer, is really a heroine's journey of how did I start hiding? How did I learn to unhide? And then in that space of learning from hiding to unhiding, I met someone, obviously, that that champion, that guardian, who showed me how to unhide. And then I took those lessons. And when I started to realize that I was still hiding because I wasn't talking about my experience and I wasn't being included in diversity conversations, how did I take what I'd learned about unhiding and apply it to that space of expanding diversity? And so what I hope is that it's a series of vignettes about my life of where I hid, where I unhid and how I did it. And then there's insights and there's, there are reflection questions. And so Mm -hmm. my hope is that whether it's used in the workplace or a book club or just one-on-one because you're in a space of hiding yourself or knowing someone in your life, whether you're a parent of a child with a difference or a disability, this is a tool for those conversations. And it's a beginning. It's not an end. It's, and I'm curious, I can't wait to see how my thinking evolves, continues to evolve, but I got pretty crystal clear with how I'm thinking about it now in terms of this journey of hiding and how we unhide. Right. I love that. It sounds like a a phenomenal book. I cannot wait to read it. I love the word that you use to describe your personal journey thus far. Mm. So maybe we talk in three years or a year down the road and maybe that word looks a little bit different or is a little different. So, or maybe the experience is a little different. And so I love that your book is a starting point. It's something to generate ideas. And the truth is there's irony in the title, right? Because when we think about single-handedly, A, I have one hand, so that would be true. Also, we think about when we think about single-handedly, we think about strong, right? Oh, they did it single-handedly. The truth is we can't unhide or connect with others without others, Like we need support. We need, we're in this together, just like your example at the post office, we need each other. And so, and the key to connection, like true, true connection with others is when we unhide. And so that's my book is single-handedly learning to unhide and embrace connection. Oh, I love it. We do hear about your own authenticity, being authentic, and then how that helps with us having that connection or connecting with our audience, connecting with other people, connecting with people socially. And we are as much as some say, well, I like to be on my own or I'm very independent or we are social beings. (laughs) We Mm -hmm. are just, and we began that way, even way, way, way back when just for survival sake. So we have learned to group. We have learned to be social. And we even saw during this time of COVID how that lack of socialization impacted us. Even if you're someone who likes their private time or might be not antisocial, but asocial, we still are social beings. So thank you for this incredible book, this incredible uh, conversation, because we've talked about so many different things here that are so relevant and so important. So thank you for being a guest on the core women podcast today, Ruth, I really appreciate it. But before we end, as we come to the close of this interview, my last question is, if you could leave the listeners with some words of wisdom, what would they be? 
Yeah, it's an excellent question because I think if there are any of your listeners who are out there who are hiding part of themselves or who know people in their lives that are hiding, how do you let someone in? I think that's the first step, right? It's a, it's identifying where you may be hiding and then it's letting someone in to help you unhide. And that first step is, as we talked about, the scariest because it's definitely scary to reveal parts of yourself, but I am definitely in a, a testament to it is totally worth it. It's how I got back to living my life. It's how I found joy again by starting to unhide and share myself with people. But that first step is letting someone in. And so if there's one of your listeners who feels alone, find that person in your life, find that community online. That's the beauty of social media. You know, we talk about the tough parts and the ills of social media. The best part of social media is you can find connection, whether it's someone with a limb difference like mine, or whether it's APDO like that you've shared, like there are spaces to find those communities. And just sometimes it takes one, letting one person in, whether it's a best friend or a manager at work or a coworker, just someone to, to not feel so alone. Mm. Thank you, Ruth, for those words of wisdom and for joining me on the Core Women podcast today. No, thank you for the power of this, of your presence. Thank you. Thanks, Summer. No, thank you so much. You can follow Ruth Rathblot on LinkedIn and at ruthrathblot.com. Thank you for joining us on the Core Women podcast with Dr. Summer Watson. We're so glad you're here and would love to connect more with you. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Core Women and on Twitter at Core Women One. For more about Core Women and Dr. Watson, visit corewomen.com. Want more support and resources for amazing women like you? Great. Join Dr. Watson and Jen Fontanilla at the Life, Love, and Money Collective, a core women production that aids in understanding the key traits that might be getting in the way of living a life that you are absolutely passionate about. Connect with Summer and Jen and find out more at thelifeloveandmoney.com.